To kind of kick us off, um, I love what we were able to do last week. I, I love this idea that uh, it's not just sitting and listening for 30, 45 minutes, an hour, um, but as we're going through this, this series on prayer, that it's, it's really an interactive, um, and hopefully this today will be very much interactive. Um, but I want us to start today with this kind of idea, right? Um, and, and that's the idea of routine. Um, and I think that there are times in our life and things in our life that we so get accustomed to that it just becomes routine, right? Um, and, and I was reminded of that this, this week as I heard somebody else sharing a story and it made me think of a story. Uh, a lot of you guys know that, uh, that we lived down in Georgia for about three years. Um, right after college, I went to Georgia to work at a church. Um, and we were there for about three years. And I remember my first Sunday at this church. Uh, now, this church was cool and it was really hip, so we had Saturday service and Sunday, so like all the cool people went to the Saturday night service, you know, and they could sleep in Sunday morning. Uh, some of you guys are like, I'd probably be down for that. Uh, I've thought about that as well, um, the idea of, of sleeping in. But but my first Sunday morning there, and I'm sitting there, and you know, there's probably I don't know, there's probably 300 people or so in the room, and 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 the preacher's up there, and he's just preaching or whatever, and you know, I'm listening or whatever, and all of a sudden I hear this just this loud noise, right? And it's not just the noise, but it's, if you've ever been somewhere where it's so loud you can feel it, right? Like if, a, like if a jet flies over and it just shakes everything, right? And all of a sudden just this noise, and I'm thinking in my mind, I'm like, what is going on? I'm like, Jesus, are you coming back for your church? Like, what is this, you know? And I'm, um, and I'm just like, but the craziest thing I noticed as I look around is nobody else in the audience seemed to be bothered or even noticed this. In fact, the pastor that was up preaching, he just paused right in the middle of the sermon, Waited till the noise stopped and continued. And it soon became apparent to me that the church was located in the back parking lot um, was, a, was, a, uh, was a railroad track. Um, and so, that, so the, the town was a big railroad town, and so uh, there was a train. And what I came to realize over the years was that that train came by at a specific time every Sunday morning. So much to the point that everybody recognized and knew that was, that was going to happen, that that was going to be part of... Uh, part of the morning, and so the pastor would preach, and then whenever the train would start to come by, it would give it kind of the warning blow. Uh, he would just pause for about two, three minutes, and then once he finished, once the train went by, he would just pick back up, um, and it became routine for everybody, and everybody, no one even seemed to notice this, this crazy thing, and I think that can happen for us when we come to very familiar passages in the Bible. I think that can happen for us when we, when we come to very familiar uh, things within the, the Christian faith, within our faith. And, and one of the areas that I think we've done that with is the Lord's Prayer, right? I feel like we could probably all sit here and rattle off the words of the Lord's Prayer without ever thinking about it. As a kid growing up in church, uh, one of our traditions in our church is we would say the Lord's Prayer every Sunday morning. Um, and you knew what kind of church you were at <laughs> by the end of the Lord's Prayer if you said forever and ever amen or just forever amen. So uh, we even got to that point of like it was just so repetitive that it lost all of its meaning. And I think that we do that. I think we can do that when we come to something that is so familiar to us, right? And, and I don't think it's a bad thing that the Lord's Prayer is familiar um, I think that's why Jesus gave it, was it would be something that we would meditate on and that we would take hold of. But I think we can make it so familiar that we don't really think about what those words are that Jesus was calling. And so what I want to call us to this morning, church, before we even begin, is just to think through the Lord's Prayer. Think through these words that Jesus gave in a new, fresh light. Um, 
and, and to be reminded of what the words were. And so um, I found a video out there, you know, somewhere out in the in the world of the internet uh, that that someone had put together, and it's really just a retelling of the Lord's Prayer. It's a it's a just walking through the Lord's Prayer. And what I love about it is, as, as I was sitting there watching part of it, it just kind of brought to mind new things about the Lord's Prayer that I. Uh, just don't think about normally when I when I recite that. And so what I would like us to do is we're going to watch this video. It's about four minutes, um, and it just walks through the Lord's Prayer. And I want you to watch it with your journal in hand and pen in hand. Because as, as the Lord brings things to mind, um, and, and maybe there's something that just kind of hits you in a new way as you're, as you're just kind of watching or, or reading the, the words of the Lord's Prayer, I want you to jot that down. Uh, Ross and I were meeting this week um, to talk about planning out for, for the message today. And one of the things that kind of came to my mind as we were talking about, I said, how cool is it going to be at the end of this series, the end of these five or six weeks, when we have a very personal account of the Lord's Prayer, right? So as we're writing down what the Lord is saying to us each week as we're going through the Lord's Prayer, it's, it, it really becomes our own personal version of the Lord's Prayer, and how cool is that going to be for us at the end of this to go back and to look back at all that God has specifically said to each one of us individually during our time together. And so I really want to encourage everybody, please, please, please be writing these things down, right? Because if you're anything like me, um, you have this amazing thought that God gives you, and then like 10 minutes later, you have no idea what it was, right? Your mind's on to something else and you've already forgotten about it. And so I think it's just going to be this, this incredible, incredible thing if we can have an account of what God is saying to us. And so we're going to watch this video, uh, write down what God's speaking to you. If you need a journal, if you didn't get one or you forgot yours or whatever, we have plenty of extras. I just got them at the dollar store, so it's not going to break the bank if you take two of them. Um, so grab a journal if you need one. Uh, there's pens over here. There's Bibles over here. And we're just going to re or watch a retelling of the Lord's Prayer. Throughout the world, 
the way the angels do it perfectly and joyfully in heaven and make it a reality in each of us. Give us this day our daily bread. We are not asking for riches, but for enough to live. We want to be healthy and to have a mind and body that work. Sustain us that we might accomplish what you call us to do. And forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. We are sinners and need to be forgiven every day. We know we don't deserve it. We ask for mercy. Forgive us. Draw us into the freedom of your love, the love you gave when your son died in our place. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We don't want to go on sinning. Keep us back from the entanglements of overpowering temptation. Guard us from Satan, from all his works and all his ways. Grant us to walk in holiness before you all our days. We pray this in the name of the one who taught us to pray, in Jesus' name, amen. So hopefully that, that maybe at the very least just kind of brought to mind different perspective, right? Maybe it gets us in the mindset of, as we look at the Lord's Prayer, let's look at it with expectancy that God's going to speak something to us. Um, and, and I really think that's the heart of why Jesus gave it. Um, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be real simply in Matthew chapter 6 today, verse 9. Um, not, a, not a whole lot of page turning today. Um, just looking at one verse. Um, however, keep your, keep your Bible there and... We'll kind of, we're just going to walk through this very slowly, and, and um, as we go into it, I think it's important that we just be reminded of the context. Last week, we, we talked about how Jesus, before he teaches his disciples to pray, he gives them some warnings, and so essentially, we said last week, one warning was, don't make prayer to kind of build yourself up as the hypocrites, as the Pharisees did, right? Don't make it all about you, so other people think better of you. Uh, but secondly, don't think that you can somehow manipulate God into giving you what you want him to, like the Gentiles did, right? Don't think that um, just because you say a certain phrase or these empty words that you don't really mean, that that's somehow going to persuade God into giving you what you want, right? Don't do that as well. Um, 
And, and so the context here as we, as we enter into this, remember, is that Jesus is, is still in. This is still in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is, is teaching a group uh, of interested people who are interested in what he has to say. Uh, his disciples are also there gathered around him. And so he is teaching them. And in Luke's account of this, in Luke chapter 11, uh, verses 1 through 4, uh, we, we learn that the disciples actually asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. They asked Jesus Lord, teach us how to pray. And I think, I think there's uh, something significant about that. One, why, of all the things that they would ask Jesus, why do they ask Jesus to teach them how to pray, right? These are Jewish men who grew up in a system which prayer became a regular part of their life. And I believe there was something they saw in Jesus, something that they noticed about Jesus, about the way Jesus prayed, and something about prayer that kind of stood out to them. And so they asked Jesus, teach us, Lord, how to pray. But not only that, but I think it also shows the importance and the struggle that we all have with prayer. And the disciples, I think, in the same way, right? That they're saying there's something about prayer. Each one of us today would say, uh, I don't think anybody would, would go as far to say as, you know what, I don't think prayer is important. I don't think prayer is important. I think we would all say that. But I think across the board, we would all say that there are aspects of our prayer life that we struggle with consistency or feeling like there's depth to it or a closeness or whatever it may be, faith, whatever it may be, we all have aspects of that that we struggle with. And I think Jesus' disciples had the same struggles. And so they're asking Jesus, teach us how to pray, right? And so and so we, we said that our principle here, our bedrock principle for the Lord's prayers, we're looking at this, is really going to be grasping the heart of God. We're going to learn so much about the heart of God through the way Jesus taught his disciples to pray, right? And so Jesus then gives his disciples a model. He says, pray in this way, right? This doesn't mean that we just need to, to repeat these words without kind of having any meaning behind them. But Jesus is setting up a model for his followers so that they would know how to pray. And so I think that's important to keep those things in mind. And so Jesus starts out his prayer uh, in verse 9 by saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, right? Our Father in heaven, right? So he starts out with an address to God. He starts out with an address to God, right? And, and that's important uh, to think about, right? Think about who we're praying to, who we're praying to. Uh, and as I was thinking through that, um, one of my, probably one of my favorite quotes that I've ever heard uh, by a guy named A.W. Tozer um, came to mind, and it's this. Uh, Tozer says this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us, right? So take just a second and think about that, right? What Tozer is, is really getting at at the heart here is to say, what we think about God, our view of God becomes the most important aspect of our lives. It's for this very reason, right? The way that we think about God, the way that we view God, determines how we look at the circumstances and the outcome of the rest of our lives. So if we view God as this distant God who doesn't care about us, who's only kind of got his own agenda out there, who kind of is, is just disconnected from creation, who's ready just to take that lightning bolt and throw it at you any chance he gets, right? Every circumstance we see in life is going to be viewed through that lens. And so if something happens to us that we don't like, well, that's just God. He doesn't really like me, right? When I think about God in that way, it, it, it impacts every aspect about me. However, if I look at God as, as we're going to see as a loving father who wants an intimate relationship 
with us. And yes, he is the God of the universe, and so he's still big and sovereign and powerful, but yet he wants a personal connection with us. When I go through those situations in life, I'm going to view them very differently because of how I view God, how I think about God. So what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so what we're going to kind of compare and contrast and look at today is both the nearness of God as Father and the farness, what we're calling the farness of God. God in heaven, how there is this, uh, this, uh, this understanding that God is beyond us and above us um, and so much bigger than we are. And so how do we put those together, right? And I think that is our biggest struggle, is that we tend to think that God is either near or far, right? We struggle to see that God can be both near us and intimately involved in our life, but yet this God in heaven who is over all things and powerful, and there's no limit to what he's able to do. And so we struggle, right? We can't put that together in our minds, and so we end up, typically we end up going on one side of that or the other. And so what I want us to do is I want us just to take, we're just going to take a minute or two, um, and I want us to start out by just having a little quick discussion, okay? This is not a long, drawn-out discussion, um, but this is just a quick discussion with the people sitting closest to you, right? And I want you to ask this question. When you think about God, do you primarily view him as a distant, all-powerful being who is in control over the entire universe, Okay, Or do you tend to view him more as a close, personal, intimate friend that you can speak with in a personal way? And the reason I want us to do that is that whichever side of that that you tend to view God as um, in, in your life, right? I want to encourage you today, because we're going to be talking about both sides, to really lean in on the other side of that. So if you tend to view God as this distant powerful, um, all-powerful God, right? But you don't, you don't really understand that close, intimate father side. I really want to encourage you to lean in as we talk about our father today in the first half. And if you tend to just view God as this intimate, close, personal father, but you don't really view him as this all-powerful God who, is, who, is gonna, who is, has a plan and going to set that plan in motion, then I'm going to really encourage you in the later half of our message to really lean into that side. Um, because the truth of the matter is God is both. He's both. That's what Jesus sets up here is that he is both close, intimate, personal father, but he's also the all-powerful, controlling God of the universe. And so let's just take a minute um, and just get uh, in a group of people right around you and just kind of discuss that. Like when you primarily think of God, which way do you view him? Uh, close, intimate friend, distant, all-powerful God of the universe. Okay? So let's just take a couple minutes, talk about that, and then we'll come back together uh, and start to look at what does it mean for God to be our father. All right, guys, I know, I know you, you guys probably didn't even have close enough time to fully discuss that, um, and that's just, that's just kind of the nature, and that's the great thing about Life Group is, go to Life Group, you have lots and lots of more time to discuss that in detail. Um, I can, feel like I can make a shameless plug for Life Groups by saying that, um, otherwise, otherwise we'll be here till, till 3 o'clock today, which, which may not be a bad thing. Um, However, if, if, if in that discussion, what you realized about yourself is that you primarily, most of the time, view God as kind of this all-powerful creator, being, God, which the Bible is very clear that he is, and you don't necessarily, um, your first tendency is not to run toward that intimate connection, uh, I'm going to encourage you to lean in on this part, right? This is, this is the nearness of God. This is our Father in heaven, right? Our Father, this, this close idea of who God is, right? And just simply that word our, right, just in the English language, that shows an idea of possession. Like there's a, there's a belonging, there's a relationship, there's a relational 
piece, right? So if I say something is mine, like my kids, right, or our our Nicole and I are talking, we say our kids, right? There's there's implied this relational piece with that, right? This idea of of, of belonging and relationship with that, um, and this idea of a personal relationship with God. Um, when Jesus was speaking this to his disciples, this was not. Um, this was not necessarily the cultural norm or expectation of the Jewish community at this point in time. They didn't primarily view God as intimate, close father, even though it was there. It's there in the Old Testament. If you go and look in scripture in the Old Testament, there's pictures of God being a close, intimate, personal friend that loves and wants that relationship. It's just not as obvious. When Jesus comes along, he highlights this aspect of God. He puts it on display for the whole world to see. And so this idea, when Jesus is even speaking this, is, is, is very, very much against the cultural understanding of God. See, the Jews, they had, at this point, when Jesus is, is teaching his disciples how to pray, they had a prayer that they say. They had a prayer that they, they pray every morning, two to three times a day, right? It's called the Shema, Shema. And in Hebrew, the word Shema, it means listen or obey, right? It's kind of that idea of like, when you, when you listen to something, then you're going to follow it, you're going to obey it. And we, and we find the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, verses 4 and 5. And this is something that the, Jew, the Jewish culture, that they would repeat multiple times a day. And it starts out with that word Shema, hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And as you listen and think about this prayer that they would pray every day, multiple times a day, right? This prayer really highlights that kind of, powerful nature of God and I should obey God, right? Which is absolutely true. But it, it doesn't at all really kind of lend to the framework of a personal intimate relationship with God, which is what Jesus is, is highlighting here. And so they didn't really have the framework for this. And so when Jesus speaks of God in this personal way as Father, this is very, very uh, countercultural to the environment that he was speaking in. In fact, Jesus was the first Jewish rabbi to call God Abba, Father, this intimate connection, personal uh, connection with God. In fact, this it becomes one of the reasons that they ended up killing Jesus uh, was they were saying that he was blasphemous to be able to call God Father uh, in this personal, intimate way. Um, in the Old Testament, there is about 15 passages that speak about God as Father, but most of those are in a very figurative way, kind of like he's the, the creator, <clears throat> the Father of the nations. However, when Jesus talks about Father, he talks about it in a very intimate personal, connected type of way. So that's what I want to look at next is this idea of Father. And I think before we look at Father, I think we all have to realize that we bring a lens or we, we bring an understanding to this word of Father, um, each and every one of us, right? Because we all, no matter who we are, we had a Father. Whether we've had a relationship with Him or not, we've all had a Father, right? And some of us this morning are in a category that we had a great earthly father. We have a great earthly father who demonstrates many of the wonderful characteristics of God, right? Um, and, and, and there's also probably an equal number of us who haven't had a great example of an earthly father, right? That our father didn't exemplify our heavenly father, right? He, he maybe our earthly father wasn't there for us, or maybe he didn't do the things that our heavenly father does for us. But I think in both categories, um, if we're truly to understand what Jesus wants us to know about God being our father, we have to take our category of earthly father and kind of push it out of the way. Because even if we had the best father in the world, they're still going to miss the mark of our heavenly father. 
And if we had the worst father in the world who just was not there for us, was absent, was not a father at all, that's still going to mess up our view of who Jesus is trying to teach us, our heavenly father is. And so I want us to just start with kind of a blank slate as we hear this word father. What does it mean? What does Jesus mean when he uses this phrase father? And I think it's important for us to, to acknowledge, right, what is a father? What does a father do? What are the roles of a father? Uh, and so I thought I'd get cute this week and uh, start them all with the letter P. And so uh, hopefully they'll all fit and won't be too cheesy, right? Uh, but I was pretty proud of myself. I'm, I'm going to be real honest. Ross looked at me like, oh, no, here we go. Um, so I shouldn't tell you guys this, but um, we had a, I had a pastor at, at, uh, when I was in college at Liberty, and he would, everything was, a, is it an acrostic? or an, Which one is it? Uh, when they, they all start with the same letter? That's not an acrostic. Alliteration, yeah. So he would alliterate every single thing. So every meeting we ever went to, everything was alliterated. Even if it didn't even come close, you know, he would use like the third word in a sentence just to make it alliterated. So hopefully this isn't that bad. Um, but we think about what does a father do? Well, he's the producer. He's the creator. A father is the, is the, is the begetter, as the Bible uses. He's the one that starts the family. There's an aspect of being father that you are the one that helps start a family. You're the creator. But that's not the only role of a father, right? Unfortunately, some fathers, that's all they think that their role is, right? They just stop. They, okay, I've created this child and now I'm done, right? But there's other, there's other important roles. A father's also a protector, a protector. There's this nature inside of a father to protect their child, to care for them and to protect them, right? I think it's amazing. You can see the most timid, meek man in the world. And somebody says something about their child, right? And they turn into a vicious warrior, right? There's just something that wells up inside of us as dads, right? If somebody does or you think someone's going to cause harm to your child, there's just this protective nature. And this is a picture of what our father in heaven is like. So he's a producer, he's a protector, but he's also a provider, right? Providing for our needs, right? And one of those needs is love, right? I think this is where a lot of earthly fathers miss the mark. They do a great job of providing for their families financially, making sure they have all they need, but they don't provide that aspect of love, right? And so they're provider. And then finally, they're a participant in, right? I don't think that any of us would say that you're a good father or that we have a, a picture of a good father if they don't participate in the life of their kids and their family. And I think all four of these are aspects of what Jesus is trying to help us understand. This is what our Heavenly Father is like. He, he, he's our creator God, right? But that's not it. He's not just this distant creator. But he's our protector. The Bible's very clear. He provides for us. But he also, and this is really where I want us to lean in, is that he participates with us. Jesus is, the phrase Jesus is using here is the word Abba. Abba. Um, it's the Aramaic word, right, uh, for father. We, we, we saw this when we were studying Romans chapter 8. And this word uh, Abba really has this close, personal intimate connection with it, right? And this is Jesus's go-to phrase for talking about God as Father, is this close, personal, intimate phrase. This is, this is the phrase that Jesus uses. And there's a few things to note about this phrase, Abba. Um, first of all, Jesus is the first one to use it in reference to God, okay? So that's important. And so this phrase is very rare, right? It's not used to describe God in the Old Testament or even in any pre-Christian literature, Jesus is the first. This is the phrase that Jesus kind of coins to talk about God as our Father. Also, just the frequency of the word Father, right? There's 15 places, like I said, that the word Father is used in the Old Testament to describe God. 
in the Gospels alone, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? There are over 165 times that Jesus uses the word Father to, think, to talk about God. This is significant, right? So much so that even the Greek-speaking uh, churches, right? So the churches, so, so Abba is an Aramaic phrase, right? And so the Greek phrase for that is patern, right? Which is where we get the idea of paternal from, uh, patern, um, which, is, which is what it gets translated over into a lot of times in the Greek. However, in Greek-speaking churches like Rome and Galatia, they continued to use this phrase Abba because that's what Jesus used to describe God as Father. So even someone that wasn't even part, that was a foreign word for them, they adopted this word because this was so important that Jesus uses it as a title for God. But this phrase Abba also has an intimate connection with it, right? It's, it's really the idea of how a little child would address their father, right? And really we could probably use the word daddy, as a really good understanding of that, right? You guys that have had uh, little children, maybe you've seen a little child around, right? And they run up to their father, right? And they go, daddy, daddy, right? It's this just personal address to a loving, intimate relationship, right? You don't call someone that you're not personally connected with daddy, right? There's this, this intimacy that's involved in that. And we also see that not only Jesus uses this, but also the New Testament writers pick up on this idea of God being this intimate father, Paul uses it some 40 times in his letters um, of, of God, right? And, and what's interesting in Paul is Paul doesn't base his idea of calling God Father on God being just our creator, but on the redemption and the reconciliation that happens through Jesus, right? Because Jesus paid the price on the cross for our sins, now we are welcomed in, we are adopted in to this family of God. And we see that in several places. Uh, one of the places we see that is in Romans 8. This is what, this is, we've, we studied through this passage uh, a couple months ago, right? But in Romans chapter 8, verse 15, Paul says this, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, there's our phrase, Abba, Father, right? This intimate, because now we have the spirit living inside of us, right? If you ever wanted to question, we talked about this, if you ever questioned, am I truly a believer, right? Well, Paul right here says, if you have the Spirit of God in you, and it just yearns and calls out to God as your Father, that's one of the indicators that you're truly His. Abba, Father. Uh, Peter writes about it in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. Right, This idea of being born into a new family, to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance, right? Inheritance is, is something that's passed on to a son, a part of a family that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. And then finally, the, the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says, See what kind of love the Father, right? Our Abba Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Just this personal, intimate picture of God. So I want you to ask this question then. If God is our Father, right, and there's this intimate connection, um, why, why should, why does God listen to us, right? I want you to kind of ask that reflectively to yourself for a second, right? Why is it that God listens to us? Um, we're not going to take a whole lot of time to, to kind of go into that. Maybe you just want to jot that question down because we're going to answer it uh, here, here in just a second. But think about that. Why should, why does God listen to us? Why should God listen to us? Why does God listen to us, right? The God of the universe, why would he listen to us? And I think the answer to that question 
Um, I think the answer to the question is, is something that um, a guy named Timothy Keller, you guys, he's a pastor in New York, he wrote a book called Prayer. Um, it's something that I'm trying to read through right now. Um, and if you, if you just really want to go deeper in your understanding of prayer, this is a great resource I would point you toward. Um, it's, it's really, really, uh, he writes it in like really small sections. They're really digestible and easy to kind of help you practically live out. Um, but it's a really great little book. But in there, one of the things that he says is that access, right? The reason the access that we have to God has to have a basis for it, right? There has to be a basis for our access, right? In order for us to have access to the God of the universe, there has to be a basis for that, right? And the basis must be determined by relationship, right? Our basis must be determined by relationship. So putting all that together, we would say access is based on relationship, right? Our access to God, our ability for God to hear us and for us to speak to God is based on our relationship that we have with God, right? And, and when we know this principle to be true in our lives, and think about it in this way, right? Um, so we have a house that we rent out in Boone's Mill, right? So we have renters that stay in our house. And we go through a, a rental company in order to rent our house out. And so what I could say is that our renters there, that house, have limited access to us, right? Based on our business relationship. If they pay me a check every month, then they have limited access, right? If something breaks in the house, if they need something fixed, they can call and I'll fix it. Well, I'll have somebody else fix it, let's be honest, right? But right there's, there's a limited access that they have to me based on our relationship. Uh, if, if, if you give me this check, then I will fix these things in the house for you, right? It's a very limited relationship. That's very different than my kids, right? My kids have instant, unlimited access to me based on our familial relationship. Because they are my kids, they have instant access. They don't have to go through an outside agency in order to get my attention most of the time. Sometimes they have to go through their mom, right, if daddy's not thinking or whatever. But they have unlimited access, right? If my kids need something, they know that they can come to me and tug on my shirt or ask me a question anytime they want to. Why? Because they're my kids, and I think that's the point of what Jesus is trying to help us to understand as we look about at God, our Father. Yes, he is ultimately powerful and sovereign over all, but he is our Abba Father. He wants that personal relationship. And we have instant access to God because of that. So as Christians, we have instant, unlimited access to our adoptive, because of our, based on our adoptive relationship, right? Because of what Jesus did, we have instant access. Look at how Paul finishes uh, Romans chapter 8. Uh, we just looked at 15, but look at 16 and 17. It says, The Spirit himself bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him, right? Because of what Jesus did now, we have instant access to our Abba Father. Right? Not just as, as children, but also as heirs and co-heirs. We are in the same place that Jesus has relationship with his Father. Right? We have that same level of access with God, our Father. I think this is interesting. Psychology, psychology tells us that one of the greatest determinatives of how a child will turn out is who their father is. Right? just tells us that. Some of us, that's a really scary thing. Some of us, you know, that's maybe an encouraging thing. I don't know. But it tells us that one of the things that will determine how we turn out, how a child turns out, is based on who their father is. That's the reason that a father's role is so important in a family, 
right? Because they will determine that. And we think about that in relation to who our Heavenly Father is, right? Think about that for a second. If our Heavenly Father wants a deep, intimate, personal relationship with us, think about what that says about us. Think about the value that brings to us as His children. And so you may say, well, well, tell me about what is this loving father, this intimate father? What's he all alike? What's he about? How does he, how does he relate to us? Um, well, we'll check this out. This is, a, this is kind of a retelling of Luke 15. Um, but, but listen, I, I put it in the very personal uh, phrase of the prodigal son. But listen to God's re- reply or what, what Jesus really wants us to get in the story. But while we were still a long way off, our father saw us and felt compassion and ran and embraced us and kissed us. And we said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But our father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on us, on him. And put a ring on his hand and a shoe, shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us celebrate. For my son, my daughter was dead and is alive again. He or she was lost and is now found, and we begin to celebrate, right? That's our loving Father. That's what he says when we come back to relationship with him, when we've been away from him, right, as the prodigal son was, and we come back. This is the relationship. That's the picture that Jesus is giving, is this is what our our Abba, intimate, close Father wants in relationship with us. And so what does that mean then, right? If God is our Father, if, if, if he is our intimate Father that wants personal relationship with us. What does that mean for us and what does that mean for our prayer life, right? Because that's what we're talking about in the context of how we pray. What does that mean in our prayer life? Well, I think it should lead us to this, right? Because of our access to God as Father, right? Because we have that immediate access to God, that unlimited access to God, we should be bold in our prayers, the things that we speak and ask for to our Father, right? If God, the God of the universe, is our intimate father and wants a relationship with us, right? We should be bold in our relationship with him. We should be bold in our prayers with him. It should lead us. If I know that I have instant access to the God of the universe who is my loving father, right? There should be nothing off the table that I don't talk to my daddy about. There should be nothing off the table that I'm afraid to ask him for or details of my life that I'm not willing to share with him, right? We should be bold in our prayer. It should, it should push us in a direction of being bold in our prayer life with our Father. And so here's what I would like us to do as we kind of wrap this side of that up, right? Um, I want us to write, this is just kind of an individual thing again, but I want us to write a prayer of commitment and gratitude to our loving Father based on our access to Him, Right? And, and if you want to have a guide, Psalm 116, verse 2, I think is a really, really important um, passage that really helps highlight this, right? Because, this is, this is the psalm writer, he's saying, because he, because God has inclined his ear to me, because God listens to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live, right? And so I just want to encourage us to take a few minutes. Uh, I'm going to put a video up. It's, it's just a music video. Um, and we keep this Bible verse up. Um, but we're just going to take a few minutes, and we're just going to write down a prayer, a personal prayer of commitment to God that because of our access to him, that we're going we're gonna to continue to have that intimate, personal relationship with him. And when we get done with that, when the video is over, uh, Ross is going to come up, and he's going to walk us through the, the, the farness, the, the overarching God of heaven and earth. Like, what does that mean? What is Jesus trying to get across as he teaches that? And then what should that lead us 
to in our relationship with him. So um, take a few minutes. Uh, let's, let's just write our prayer out to God, uh, and then we will finish up uh, the rest of this verse. All righty. Uh, we are going to continue uh, talking about this first part of the Lord's Prayer. So we talked about the first half, the idea of our Father, and how we get that intimacy as we come to God in prayer. But if we leave it at that, we fall into the trap uh, that Jesus warns us against at the beginning of this, of this chapter. Right? We fall into treating God as this genie that if he's our Father, he just gives us whatever we want. But we, if we miss that second half, we lose the bigger picture of who God is. And that second part is in heaven. Um, and so there are lots of ideas about what heaven is like, and we probably all have a picture of what that is. Um, some nine-year-old children were interviewed what they thought heaven was, and they, of course, were hilarious. And so I wanted to share some of those with you. So here are some responses of what they thought of heaven. So one kid said, when you, got, when you die, God takes care of you like your mother did when you were alive, only God doesn't yell at you all the time. Another <laughs> uh, one said, only the good people go to heaven, the other people go where it's hot all the time, like Florida. <laughs> uh, the next one is, maybe I'll die someday, but I hope I don't die on my birthday, because it's no fun to celebrate your birthday if you're dead. <laughs> And then this last one, when you die, you don't have to do homework in heaven unless your teacher is there too. <laughs> so I think a lot of our reaction to who God is is often what we think heaven is, that God is a picture of what heaven's going to be like, and so that uh, skews our view of who he is. And so we often see God as distant and cold because we think of heaven as this place that's way far away that we will experience someday but that's for far off in the future. And so it contributes to this farness of God that we experience. But God is much more than that, um, and it's tied into the Jewish idea of what heaven is actually like. And so I want to break that down for us. It'll seem like we're going way too deep, but we will come up for air, and it'll all connect, I promise. So the idea of heaven in Jewish culture, there's actually three levels, if you will, of heaven in their ideology. So the first part is what's called the firmament, or what we would call the sky, right? The part we can see, but it's still far, but it's not, you know, it's seeable, there's birds up there, that kind of thing. So this is described in Genesis chapter 2, verse 19. It says, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and brought them to man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name, right? So they're not saying that there's a bird in the celestial being where God is, right? They're talking about the heavens regarding the sky. So that's that first part. The second, then, is the starry heavens, or what we would call space, or like these you know, celestial bodies. So in Matthew, uh, Jesus is actually describing it in chapter 24, verse 29 to 30. It says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the power of heavens will be shaken. They then will appear in heaven, the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with pure and great glory. Right. So in this part, he references the sun, the moon, the stars, Right. as all part of heaven. So that is a second part that Jesus is referring to there. The third is what we think of as heaven, which is the spiritual realm, or what they would call the third heaven. And it's actually... Paul uses that exact phrase in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 2 to 3. 
He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Right? So this is the third heaven, which is what he's referring to as the actual spiritual realm that God dwells in. Okay, so we have this picture of what heaven is, the idea of being close to far, and the idea of being small to big, right? Within our comprehension, sort of within our comprehension, things we do not comprehend, right? So let's go the opposite direction now. So we're going to look at what this means to us as, as far as uh, going from far to close. Okay, so what we can see from God with this description of heaven, far, the first thing is that it's far away, right? That it is a physical place that is distant, uh, and Jesus talks about this uh, in John chapter 14, uh, where he says to his disciples, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I wouldn't have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Right? It is far away. It's a place that's distant. Okay, So it's a real place. But it's also all around us, right? The idea that earth is a picture of a broken world. It was intended to be something else. And that heaven will be a restoration of that uh, ideal design for earth. So in Hebrews 12, 22-24, described, you have come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, right? There's a real earthly Jerusalem. There's going to be a heavenly Jerusalem, a pure picture of what that was meant to be. To the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God, you have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, right? There's still going to be church, whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirit of righteous men, made perfect. To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Right? We get to see a glimpse of heaven on earth, but it's going to be something even better. And so to say that God just dwells up in heaven isn't really the full picture. God is also all around us. And in a sense, the earth is a picture of what heaven will be eventually, right? What changes with heaven is our capacity to know him, love him, appreciate him, and ultimately dwell with him in an even more intimate relationship. And the third thing we see about heaven is the idea that it's not only far away and around us, but also inside us. We are to bring this kingdom of God, right? Jesus brings the kingdom of God. We have Jesus and the Holy Spirit inside us. Therefore, heaven is a part of us as well. In Luke 17, verse 20 21, uh, Jesus is talking and he says, Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So to put all this together, I know it's a lot of stuff here. The question that we're trying to answer is, what is Jesus saying by noting our Father is in heaven? If he is in heaven, where is he? And by all these pieces that we're putting together, what we could say is God is both far away among us and inside us. He is something to hope for, something we see in part, and what we see in other believers. Right, so we have a picture of God as our Father, this intimate relationship, but he's also in heaven. And it's not simply that he's far away, but he is beyond understanding. Because he's not just far away, but he's among us and inside us as well. 
And so all of this put together, we're going to discuss this, your thoughts about all of this that I've just presented to you here. Okay, so talk with a group for a couple of minutes. What is your reaction to this contrast that seems to go against each other? That God is our Father, yet also is this in heaven, this multitude of ideas all put together. And how do these two ideas show us who God really is? All right, chat with a group for a couple of minutes. All right, if we could try and bring it back. I know we have a lot to talk about. As Rustin said, we can talk more in life group this week. Um, lots of things to discuss. Um, so when we look at this first part, our Father in heaven, right? You have to have the our Father first to have this trusting, loving relationship because the in heaven we're not going to get. Right? But if we trust that God is our Father and he has good things for us, that in heaven we're not going to comprehend, and that's okay. Because Jesus tells us what the next part is, that after all of that, right, our reaction should be, holy is your name. Like, I'm not going to get this, but I understand that you are both good and powerful and all-knowing and everywhere. Right? And so our reaction should be this next part of the prayer. Right? Holy is your name. I will not understand this. So the first thing we should recognize is this desire to bring glory to God's name. Right? We've gotten a name for God, Abba, our Father, and our goal should then be, once we get that, is to bring glory to that name, to make his name famous. Jesus recognizes this at the crucifixion, right? in this moment where he's about to bring glory to God's name. In John chapter 12, Verse 27, 28, Jesus is talking. He says, now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And I just love the response. It's such like a a movie moment almost. Uh, And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Then we go into the crucifixion. It's like such a great uh, like cinematographic moment right there. But yeah, so the the whole point of getting to this moment of recognizing who God is, we recognize his his paternal nature, and we recognize his heavenly nature. And our reaction then should be worship. Uh, So the the phrase that's used here is hallowed, which is just another way to say holy. We don't really use hallowed all that much nowadays. Uh, I guess if we're talking about a graveyard or something, we might say hallowed. But uh, it means set apart or different. This idea of holiness being set apart and different. And then the other part of this verse that we, we are thinking about is God's name. So holy, set apart, different is God's name. When we think of a name as far as the Hebrew culture would be thinking, it's not just the title or what you call somebody, but it implies what their character is as well. Um, all names have meaning attached to them. Um, and so it really is more about the meaning than the actual what the, how it sounds. So, for example, in Psalm 9, verse 10, the psalmist writes, And those who know your name, talking about God, put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. The psalmist isn't saying here, just because you know God is called Yahweh, means you understand he will trust you. Right? It's because you understand his character, not his name, that you trust him. There's a uh, apocryphal story of Alexander the Great. I say apocryphal because I'm a history teacher, and I feel like I have to give that disclaimer. Probably didn't actually happen. Uh, it more shows a character trait about Alexander the Great than the actual event. Uh, but the story goes that he was walking around his camp. Alexander the Great is this great 
obviously great conqueror, uh, and he was very uh, much involved in the life of his troops. He would walk around camp, he would sleep where they slept, he would eat what they ate, which is why people liked him. Uh, but he was walking around camp one night, and he found a soldier sleeping on duty. And so he went up to the soldier and said, Soldier, wh what is your name? Uh, and he said, My name's Alexander, sir. And Alexander the Great just stopped and stared at him, and then kind of grabbed him and shook him. He's like, What is your name? And he said, Alexander. And uh, Alexander the Great says, Either change your name or change your behavior. <laughs> right? Because the name points to a character trait. When people think of Alexander, that he wanted them to think about this great conqueror, not some guy sleeping on the job. Uh, so we see the same thing with God, that his name denotes a character trait. Right? Uh, when God talks to Moses in Exodus 3, Moses asks him what his name is, and he says, I am is my name. Right? God has lots of different titles and names, but Moses needed to hear that his name was I am, because he needed to know God is present and with him. Uh, and so it's part of the reason why we should often be careful to avoid negatively using God's name. Because we're not just saying a word, we're saying a character trait, and it's reflecting on who God is. And so what Jesus is saying is when you pray, pray like this. First of all, acknowledge who God is. He's both our Father and in heaven. And acknowledge what his character is. Holy is his name. And so part of God's character is his power to help people who call on his name. Right? There are lots of examples in the Old Testament and in the New Testament of people using God's name to bring powerful things to happen. We see a great example in the New Testament in Acts, in the early church, with Peter, and he interacts with uh, a man who is lame from birth. So we're going to read this passage together, kind of point to this idea of the power of God's name. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold. What I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And God recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. See, God's name has power behind it, and when that power comes out, the response is amazement and wonder, because that is what is going to bring glory to God. And so, putting this all together, the nearness of God, the fact that he is our Father, should make us more bold in our prayer. We have access to God through that intimate relationship. But at the same token, the farness of God should make us more faithful in our prayers, that he's going to come through because he already gets it. He's beyond what our comprehension is. And that is a good thing. The fact that we don't know everything about God means that he is who he says he is. If we completely understood God, we would be God. Right? And so 
what our challenge is for this week is to be thinking and praying about who God is, about his name and his character. What we'd like to do to kind of wrap up our time uh, before we sing a final song uh, is to spend time in prayer um, by using the names that God gives of himself throughout scripture. So we've put a list up here of some uh, Hebrew names in their English translation. Uh, I want to just give you some time to talk or journal or whatever you would like to do. Uh, to choose a name and then write about how you've seen God this way in your life. Is God the uh, Lord and Master? Is he the Lord that heals? Is he the one that is the God of all knowledge? And kind of pray through this list or just pick one and spend some time journaling about your thoughts about this name of God. Um, so so one of the things that uh, I just wrote down is, is Ross was saying, and I think this kind of leads us into the last part uh, for today, is he said when... Um, when we recognize the paternal nature of God and the vastness, the, the beyond us nature of God, it should lead us to worship him. Um, like when, when I can't understand, when I can't figure it all out, yet I don't know everything about God, but I know that he's father and I know he's beyond me and he has this whole world, right, and the world beyond us in his control. When I understand those two things, it should lead my heart to a place of worshiping that God. And that's really what I want to call us to in this moment as the church, um, is just as we've been thinking through God as my Father, as I've been thinking through as uh, God being holy and above us, right, uh, that, that would lead us into a place of uh, worshiping Him and singing to Him. And so uh, we're going we're gonna to sing, uh, Behold Our God, just this, this really just, just this cry out of who our God is and, and how vast uh, and beyond us and how how huge our God really is. And so uh, I would just invite you to stand and join us and just to sing out and let that be the rhythm and the cry of your heart. And that's going to be our wrap-up for today, okay? So when we finish this song, uh, it's just going to be like lights on and we're going to kind of wrap up and go for the day because I want us just to kind of end everything we do with just singing praises to who God is. And so uh, let's just pray together one time and then Tom and Letitia are going to come and lead us uh, in, in, in this song of worship. So Father, we thank you. God, we thank you that we have these words uh, written down of who you are. God, we thank you that Jesus, that you taught us to pray, that God, you are Father. God, you are intimate and close to us, and you love us, and you want relationship with us. God, but at the same time, you are in heaven. There is nothing outside of your control and your power and your reach. God, there is nothing that is too big or too far for you. Um, God, and because of those two things that we don't completely understand, Father, God, and we don't, we don't even begin to understand how you put those two ideas together, God, but all we know is that because of that, God, we just want to sing praises to your name because you were holy, God, and so, God, just that you would receive our praises as we sing to you in this moment, God, we love you, it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.